Welcome to another episode of Brute Facts. Tonight I have Dr. Josh Rasmussen. I am excited for this episode. He is an associate professor at Azusa Pacific University, has a PhD from Notre Dame, and has written quite a few books and quite a few articles, many that I have benefited tremendously from myself. So hang around and he'll be on shortly. Welcome, Dr. Josh. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. I think I just got eaten by a lion. That was a cool <laughs> intro. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I actually did that myself. I, That's uh, awesome. It took, well, man, it is it is so hard to uh, play with the vid- video editing. It's, uh, you know, it makes you lose hair. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> Thanks to hair now. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Uh, so, I love that. Cool. I'll Good put, job. I appreciate that. Uh, so is it pronounced Azusa? Azusa Pacific University. Okay. Yeah. I thought, I, I thought so. And Notre Dame, did you get to work with uh, Alvin Plantinga? Yes. So Plantinga was, uh, he was my research sponsor during a postdoc position. Um, and then before that, I worked with Peter Bannonwagon. He was wow. my dissertation advisor. Wow. So, yeah. He, he, Peter was really awesome. He helped me to, appreciate the value of making things clear and defining all of your terms. So I love that about him. Yeah. Yeah. Van Inwagen, he's one of those that if you didn't know, you wouldn't know if he was a theist or not. He kind of takes different positions that uh, typically other philosophers of religion that are theists don't Mm -hmm. take. So I bet that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't a theist earlier in his career and you know, he's shifted over. Um, I think in his testimony, I remember reading that there was sort of this duck rabbit uh, experience where he could sort of see the universe as self-sufficient, but then he could also see it as dependent. And he was kind of flickering between the views. But then, wow. yeah, so he became a theist later in his career. Okay, well, that makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, were you raised a Christian? Um how yeah, did that so work with you? I'm I'm a philosopher. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's one thing about me. I'm I also like to tell people that I'm a conscious being. Uh, I have that going for me as well. Uh, but yeah, so my family, uh, my parents uh, raised me in the cr- Christian tradition. And as we were talking before the show, I had sort of a worldview falling apart. And you were describing this for your own self, where your worldview sort of fell apart and. And you became agnostic uh, for a bit there. And I had that same experience. And I think this is actually a very common experience where 
you kind of go from a worldview of your community or maybe your family or whatever, and then you realize that not everybody has that worldview. And so you have to kind of figure out, okay, well, I can't just borrow my worldview from others. Uh, so let me think about this. And that sort of led me into philosophy and, you know, to kind of own my worldview and, and build my own understanding of, of reality. And this was in high school, right? Yeah, this was late high school. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so did you actually get into philosophy in high school or was that just kind of a natural? Well, it's so interesting, Eddie, because I think that like I didn't know what philosophy was, but I think that I was always kind of interested in these kind of questions. I remember early when I was a child, just thinking about the numbers and bugging my mom with the question, like, so what number is the highest? And she said, they just keep going. I think at one point she said it was like 88 or something. I have this memory, like looking up at my mom, like what number is the highest? And I, I feel like she said it was like 88. And, uh, and then I, and then I was like, there's, so there's no number higher than 88, you know? And I was like, well, no, there is one more. Like, well, what's 88 plus one, right? It's just like, oh, they keep going. They keep going. And I was just like very fascinated by that. Like how high do they go? And then if they go up forever, that's weird. You know, how can there be an infinite number of numbers, you know? Right. So I remember kind of having those questions and thinking about sort of big questions about what kind of a world I'm in. But I didn't know that, they, that there was this thing called philosophy. That that field of philosophy was completely unknown to me. Wow. Uh, not until high school. And then I discovered it sort of on the Internet that people were kind of doing this professionally, thinking about these questions. Yeah, that's <laughs> that seems like one of those uh, arbitrary answers that parents give to their kids kind of like i do just <laughs> stop the questions it's uh... i might i might be misremembering i just have this vague <laughs> memory of that you know but yeah i know what you mean you just got you have to say something maybe that was like the biggest number you know at the time right that i had considered right um but then i went to my dad you know after after i talked with my mom about this i continue to have these conversations with my dad and uh it seemed like he was more interested than my mom and kind of uh, kind of thinking with me about my questions. And so I appreciated that. That's, that's funny because in my experience, it seems like the dads tend to be a bit more nihilistic about everything. It's, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it all ends. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, <laughs> but I, I do have memories of when I was a child, mm -hmm. I would lay in bed. Uh, I'm talking before teenage years and wonder about space mm -hmm. and what's out there yeah and right is there something beyond space and sometimes it would actually kind of frighten me um so it, it's i guess i kind of had a philosophical mind when i was young but i would have never thought i would have ended up as philosophy as a hobby though mm -hmm. uh, just given my background because like you said i mean um went through the deconstruction and everything and kind of stumbled in to philosophy um so when you got uh ready to go to college what were you thinking mm -hmm. you wanted to do at that time was it philosophy so i was actually a computer programmer um when i was 12 years old we got this little green, uh, it was like black and green um, computer. Uh, so the text was like green, there's no color. And I got very interested in like programming it to make like text based adventures. And then as I got older, we got a color computer. 
And I was interested in, in making uh, games uh, and then eventually 3D games. And so this was actually my passion in high school and then in college. So I ended up getting a degree in computer science. But kind of like you, I picked up the philosophy hobby. And you know, once I discovered what this was, I remember coming into one of my classes and I had checked out several books on the existence of God, some by atheists arguing against God, some by theists arguing for God. I still remember sitting next to a, a football player who played for uh, ASU, Arizona State. And he was like, so, you know, what are you doing? You know, what are those books? And I was like, well, I'm trying to sort of figure out the nature of reality, you know? So I think this is like freshman or sophomore year of college. I was getting a degree in computer programming, but I was definitely interested in philosophy sort of on the side as a hobby. So when did, so did you have, uh, were there any particular philosophers that inspired you or mm -hmm. uh, that you really looked up to at that yes. time? At that time, I discovered William Rowe, and he's got this book on the cosmological argument. And it's interesting because I think most people who know William Rowe might think of him as an atheist philosopher arguing against God from evil because he became very well known for his articulations of the problem of evil. But the book that I read from his was the cosmological argument and he uh, critiques certain versions of it. But then toward the end of the book, he finds a pathway that he says can provide reason. He says it's not a proof, but it can provide a kind of reasonable belief in not just a necessary eternal foundation of things, but a foundation that would have divine attributes of perfection. And he makes mm -hmm. that argument toward the end there. And he analyzes that he doesn't come to a belief in God himself on the basis of the argument, but he assesses the argument as being a, a reason that one could have to believe in God. And I thought that was very interesting. So he was somebody early on. Um, let's see, Norman Geisler, he, you know, I discovered his work. His, his was kind of one of my earliest um, discoveries. And he has a very systematic approach, which I found very interesting and helpful organizing the different topics. Um, you know, then later I discovered other philosophers like Alvin Plantinga and uh, uh, Wes Morstan was another philosopher I discovered as an undergrad. In fact, I remember emailing Wes Morstan some questions I had about his online lectures that I discovered on the internet. And he replied. And so we had an interesting conversation. And then when I got into graduate school, I ended up TAing for Wes. Oh, as wow. a graduate student. So I thought that was kind of fun and cool uh, how that worked out. That's, that's interesting because I have a couple of friends um, who have sent emails uh, to you and you respond quite often mm -hmm. to it. And I think that's, um, that's pretty awesome given, you know, all the work that you have to do that you still take the time to respond to, you know, the, the lay people or the ones mm -hmm. just getting started in it. So well, it's you. good. To... I enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. I that's that. Yeah. And so, sometimes they're like, well, we'd have a question or something. Well, why don't you just email Josh? And I'm like, Josh has got so much to do. The last thing I want to do is just bombard him with email. So I, I make them do it. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm getting slightly overrun by it, but it's still very enjoyable. What I do is I batch them. And so if somebody emails me and I don't reply for a while, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sort of batching a bunch together and then I'll sort of knock them out. And I'm also 
trying to sort of send um, answers into my new website, Worldview Design, where I'll do a sort of weekly answer to a question there as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic. So that's yeah. a fantastic um, site that you have. I'm a member there too, mm -hmm. and uh, the amount of people you know uh, giving. I think every day I have another email for an article. And mm -hmm. it's just, it, it's so much information at the fingertips. I think it's a, a super awesome thing that you did with it. Um, with So it makes sense now, as much as you think about reality, the mm -hmm. nature of reality, the foundation of reality, that you are a programmer. Because <laughs> most programmers or code writers or, you know, uh, firmware uh technicians and did I they kind of if they're theistic they have a Spinoza kind of idea about God mm -hmm. or uh, they're pantheist or something like that it seems like you guys almost kind of look at life being code is that <laughs> that's interesting I hadn't really thought about it that way I'm sure it's pretty pretty diverse um, in terms of what the programmers would think, but I can see what you mean, sort of that, that informational element of code. I mean, one thing that I noticed when I would do software development is that, is that sometimes the program wouldn't do what I wanted it to do. And I discovered that there was always a reason for that. Like it was never just random. And maybe I couldn't know what, I couldn't figure out what the bug was in the program right away. But really through process of trial error, I would discover, oh, okay, here's the bit of code that's causing this effect that I don't like, you know, and then I'll change that code and get a different effect. Uh, and so there's a, there's a real causal order. And I've thought about that in terms of the sort of intelligibility of reality. Uh, you know, reality is intelligible in ways. Uh, it makes sense. Like there's a causal order and it makes sense even beyond like what I know. So even if I don't understand how it works, there's some way it works. And if I investigate it, I can sort of figure that out. And then also the informational element that, in order to get the program to do anything that I want, it takes a lot of thinking through uh, in order to produce interesting effects. So there might be, you know, that sort of connection between the programmer and the sort of philosophical view. Yeah, that's uh, because to me, um, you know, looking at how mathematics works, mm -hmm. you know, in, in reality, it's almost like we can explain everything through some kind of mathematical formula or, you know, we find things in physics before we actually really find them. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems like there's kind of a coded language, you yeah. know, that lies behind everything. So. Yeah. So I've noticed a few uh, of the comments and things that you've been putting later, uh, lately more about consciousness. It's, are mm -hmm. you an idealist? <laughs> That's a difficult and interesting question for me. Uh, difficult in part because the term idealism comes in different varieties, well as it has certain associations that I used to associate it with that I don't subscribe to. Um, but it's been interesting because. Oh, froze on us. I guess um, the Internet coding gods cursed him <laughs> so we will have to see if he can 
pop back in or not. Ah, there we go. Okay. Did I just cut out? Yeah, you froze for a minute. And I was fixing to start panicking. But uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, so, I was here all along. I, I was moving the whole time, but you know, I, I get it. <laughs> it was the, uh, the image left, of me. Yeah, you left off at um, different ideas of idealism, so yeah. you didn't ascribe to. Yeah, so I've been on a on a journey, a slow journey, step by step, to seeing the world as uh, not just fundamentally mental, but that we can explain the pieces of reality, the laws of physics, the geometric structures that we see in terms of the things that are most familiar to us within consciousness. So within my own consciousness, I witness informational structures, which I could call thoughts. And these can be the basis of of, um, intentions. So intentions, well, let me put this a little bit differently. An intention to, let's say, go mow the lawn, that intention builds within it an informational component or a thought component that I will mow the lawn. And these intentions then can be the basis of laws, where laws come out of this sort of informational structure that we witness it within our own consciousness. Same thing with visual imagery. I've had dreams where I knew I was dreaming and I was wondering, okay, well, what if I'm dreaming, like, what is this stuff that I'm looking at? I'm looking at geometric patterns and and colors and shapes. and, and, And I'm thinking, well, what is that? I mean, some people say that it's nothing. You're not aware of anything. But if I'm not aware of anything, how can I distinguish one part of my dream from another? I mean, if it's just nothingness, how can I distinguish one nothing from another nothing? Nothing. Any froze on us again. You got to love the uh, California Internet. We'll wait here a second. I'm sure he'll pop back on here. So while we wait for him to pop back up, we'll look at a few comments. Ah, it was Converse Contender's fault. Okay, there you go. But, um, yeah, so everybody's off the computers on my end. So hopefully... <laughs> this, this can continue. Um, That's okay. Yeah. You, we don't have any power over the internet. We just kind of move with what we have. So, um, so the dreams distinguishing nothingness from from or, other. Or yeah. Say. So I mean, I would have dreams where I would see uh, shapes and colors or something like that. And if somebody says, "Well, I'm not actually seeing anything," or not acquainted with anything, not aware of anything, the problem. What I have with that is that I can distinguish parts of my dream. I can I can see that, okay, here's some kind of like red patch over here. Here's now I'm shifting my attention or somehow my dream is changing up. Now it's like a blue patch or, you know, geometry changes. And there's different analyses of that. But minimally, it looks like I'm acquainted with something. And what's been intriguing to me is, is 
both on the science end and the philosophy end, there's a lot of uh, interesting science that points to this. And then there's interesting conceptual analysis that's very in interesting to me and, and um, has been leading me along the lines of analyzing the world in terms of the things that are most familiar to us, the, the contents of our own consciousness, so that we have thoughts, uh, feelings, emotions, intentions, uh, geometric imagery within visual images, and that if we can analyze reality in terms of those things, then we can give a parsimonious account of reality. There's different ways we can develop this. Um, that's why I said there's different versions of, of idealism. And I actually hesitate to use the term idealism. I'm more comfortable with saying something like mentality is, is primary or fundamental to reality. So it's sort of like the upside down picture of materialism, where on materialism, reality is fundamentally mindless. And then from mindless units, you generate all mentality. I think that picture is precisely upside down of, of what I think is true, which is that it's mind that's fundamental and everything else comes from that, from mentality. You know, the further along I get and the more that I look into philosophy of mind and qualia and, you know, just experience and mm -hmm. uh, I'm leaning a lot more towards uh, the same kind of um, idea that there's just something fundamental that seems to be, you know, like a mind. Um, mm -hmm. It just, it, it's hard to imagine how, you know, material can give rise to this enormous amount of content, you know, that we can't measure like we can material things. And so what is your idea of like abstracts? I mean, is that, do they have a certain kind of existence to you or, or how do you kind of categorize mm. um, those abstracts, you know, the, the kind of universal abstracts, the mental mm -hmm. content that you're talking about? Yeah. Like numbers, for example, or propositions. So for example, if I say snow is white over here, uh, you know what I mean over there. Okay. Well, how, how are you able to know what I mean over there when I'm saying snow is white over here? Uh -huh. uh, so philosophers talk about a shared content between sentences and well, what is that shared content? Call that a, a, a proposition and propositions are things that can be true or false. You can match reality. Snow is white. I think matches with reality, but I can entertain the proposition that snow is white even if there is no snow, even if there's, even if nothing's white. So the proposition that snow is white, it's not the same thing as the sort of reality of snow being white, something else. And we could call it an abstract thing. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to just call it, you know, a proposition or whatever. I think part of the problem with the term abstract is that even that term admits of different definitions. Some people define it as something that has a, doesn't have causal powers, if it's abstract. But, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe maybe propositions um, do have causal powers in some sense, or at least explanatory powers. They can serve as reasons for actions, for example. Um, so yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, my it's I've been doing a lot more <clears throat> focusing kind of like on uh, myriology and myriological. And yeah. yeah. And myriological nihilism. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and these different ideas of how 
reality kind of fits together. I, I don't understand yeah. how somebody could be a muriological nihilist and not be an idealist in some kind of way. Um, I've had them explain to me, you know, the, the, at the fundamental level, uh, you know, these particles and, and things or points uh, mm -hmm. exist and that's just what's fundamental. But uh, it's kind of like the, the old PSR problem, you know, where you just kind of follow the PSR to a certain point and then it's just brute. You uh -huh. know, that's the brute and, facts podcast. Brute facts. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I, I really want to join you here in, in the uh, what you just said, because it's so fascinating. When I was in graduate school, there was a professor who gave a talk at Notre Dame about nihil muriological nihilism, the view that uh, that everything is basically simples. Um, arranged in different ways. So chairs are fundamentally like particles arranged like a chair. And then, but he argued from nihilism to the non-existence of people, right? Because the idea was that, well, I mean, if, if I exist, then from a materialistic perspective, the kind of thing that I would be would be some kind of complex structure, maybe a brain or something like this. But the nihilist doesn't think that there are any complex things. There's nothing that has parts. There's only the simples, right? But it's interesting, Eddie, because you just basically flipped that argument around. So you basically saw that, well, wait a minute, if anything's clear, it's that I exist. Okay, that's clear. Well, then if if uh, mirological nihilism is true, well, then it follows that, well, I'm not a complex thing. I'm a simple, you know, I'm, I'm one of the simples. I'm one of the, the basic beads of reality. Right. Uh, and, you know, and I, I don't know that that leads exactly to uh, idealism, because you could still have simple persons and then yeah. simple non-persons right? right but i mean you know why posit the extra complexity right if, if you already have simple persons and then if you can explain everything else all of your experiences of other things in terms of conscious states of persons then there you go right. yeah well and it also kind of fits into um you know like the philosophy of mind the principle of parsimony uh, mm -hmm. to me it seems to be more parsimonious if the mental is fundamental instead of adding the material required for the mental. It seems like we're adding more, you know, trying to come up with this idea of emergence or, or how, you know, we can have the mental that exists. And it just seems like for the principle of parsimony that the mental would be the foundational thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, just for the listeners, um, I'm not actually a, a neurological nihilist myself, yeah. um, so yeah. I don't want to give the wrong idea, um, although I can really appreciate the arguments for that. I mean, there's some very interesting puzzles and there's certainly a connection from nihilism to what we're talking about here about consciousness, which also just shows how all these different topics are interrelated in deep ways. Right. And it's hard to really think about one without unpacking a lot of others, you know, so you just mentioned parsimony. You know, well, why, why is parsimony relevant here? Well, because you might think that if we're going to compare two large scale theories of the world and both of them account for all of the data that we're aware of, then the one that's the simplest, the one that posits the fewest uh, kinds of things you might think is more likely other things being equal. You know, if it, it, so this is where parsimony comes in, right? And so then if you can have a more a parsimonious theory with mentality being fundamental and people make this argument 
then maybe that would be you know a reason in support of fundamental mentality. I think it's difficult though, because it's all going to depend on sort of what your primitives are. So mm -hmm. for some philosophers, I mean, it is sort of among their primitives, you know, I was talking with the philosopher who said it's one of their primitives. Uh, the term natural is among their conceptual primitives and that there are natural objects is something that they would take to be kind of part of their worldview. And so if that's right, then, uh, well, then there's a further question about whether natural objects could be fundamentally mental. But if you think that natural objects are fundamentally sort of at their base, non-mental or mindless, then um, then you're going to be working with different materials. And so then you still want the simplest theory that can account for all the materials that you're working with. Um, but the simplest theory might not be the same as as the theory that you're going to arrive at if you start with sort of mentality as your primitives. Yeah, and it's and it's also a fair critique, you know, that uh, just because it's parsimonious doesn't mean that it's true. You mm -hmm. know, it's just kind of a principle. We there's it seems to be no reason to just you know posit more complexity, even though some situations it's it is a more complex thing especially yeah, when we're talking right. about the mind so yeah. <laughs> so like how does favor yeah go ahead you, no i was just going to say yeah. so how does this all um your idea of reality um the way that you kind of view the fundamental nature how does that tie into christianity so a broadly christian worldview is going to include the idea that reality is fundamentally mental, that there is a, a supreme mind, in fact, and that this mind is interested in us. Uh, the way that I would think about this is that a supreme mind would, would, would have supreme qualities, including the quality of being good and valuing that which is good. And so I take it that um, persons have a kind of intrinsic value and so if that's right, then if there's a supreme mind, then the supreme mind would value persons, would value us. So it wouldn't be just entirely disinterested in, in our lives. And so at the heart of the Christian story is the idea that this supreme mind or, or universal um, fundamental being is so interested in us that it would enter into the human story and display for us its nature um, and even identify with our suffering. I was actually thinking about this earlier today, the idea of of um, of sin or let's say um, of shame, uh, where you feel that sort of guilt because you've done something that that you yourself you know goes against your own conscience, and it's like, well, what do you do with that? I mean, every human being I think has that experience of you know what do you do when you feel like you've you failed? You know, what do you do with that? And well, in the Christian story, what you have is God displaying forgiveness through that metaphor of that scapegoat, where the actual sins are put on uh, God himself, you know, put on Jesus. And then Jesus takes that. It, it's a, it's a, a reflection of the Old Testament metaphor of the um, sin going on the animals and then being sent off as a, as a scapegoat. So it's it's like God saying, you know what? I know that you have that feeling of guilt and shame and I love you and I'm, I, for, I forgive that. Like I'm offering you a clean slate. So all of this is related to whether there even is 
a foundational mind that could even care about us, right? right? And so that's one of the deep connections here between thinking about consciousness and its ultimate nature and its ultimate basis. And these other worldview questions, I think that are very practically connected to our lives in terms of whether God loves us, for example. Did So did philosophy kind of lead you to the truth of Christianity or was it um, a convincing or strengthening factor and you were already, you know, more or less a Christian? What, what was it that, that kind of um, led you to be confident in Christianity? So this is kind of how I would tend to think about it in terms of philosophy is that philosophy kind of helps me to look at the kind of the biggest questions and seek the deepest explanations. You know, you mentioned abstract objects, like what are these? Well, if we can analyze abstracta in terms of um, as, as elements that are based on um, concepts or thoughts or mind, then this is going to point to, again, a reason to think that reality has some kind of mentality. Um, and so th this will then provide a kind of mutually supporting idea if at the heart of human history, there is this account of God coming into human history and demonstrating love and purpose. And so I would think of philosophy as kind of providing, let's say, reinforcement for that idea. Um, but it's, I, I don't see that like just from philosophy, you can sort of figure out these historical questions, right? So I think you kind of have to actually look into the historical data. I think the way that philosophy kind of helps me is that it gives me, it, it affects my prior probability of what to expect when I'm looking into the historical data. Because again, I mean, if I have reasons to think that instead reality is fundamentally mindless, then that's going to make any particular account of a mind entering into the world or displaying itself in some way, um, obviously less likely. But if I have independent reasons for a fundamental mind, then that's going to change the probability. But I, but I don't think you can just answer the questions just philosophically. I think then you've got to actually look at the data of history. And that's something that I, I've done. And when I was at Notre Dame, I went to the library and checked out about a dozen or so books um, on this topic, uh, reading the critical scholars, looking at the historical data. This is now my area of expertise. So when I speak about this, I, I don't speak as an expert, um, but it's something that I, that I obviously would, you know, be interested in and, and have studied. My, my sort of expertise is more in the sort of foundations of reality, sort of thinking about that. Um, and then I sort of bring that into my analysis of the history. That's kind of how I tend to think about it. Interesting. That's, um, I think you brought up a very interesting point there. And that is um, how we view the fundamental nature of reality. Um, I, I guess if one uh, believes that it is material at the foundation, that that kind of minimizes, you know, the ability to view, you know, uh, a cosmic mind or some kind of mind mm -hmm. behind nature or, or, or reality. So uh, that's an interest, a very interesting point that I've really never considered. Yeah. Well, and it affects your prior probability. So right. your prior probability is sort of 
your expectation of how likely a hypothesis prior to the the evidence that you're you're going to consider like the historical evidence for example uh, you know the prior probability of a square circle raising jesus from the dead <laughs> okay is like yeah. in my mind zero right because i have independent reason i think there can't be a square circle now for some people you know some people might be watching this and they, they might have certain arguments against the coherence of a supreme mind and then those arguments will diminish the prior probability for them um, prior to even looking at any kind of evidence with respect to the historicity of God entering into the world. And I also want to just say this, um, something else that philosophy has done for me is it's it's kind of widened my conception of God's relationship to beings and cultures throughout history and, and throughout time. Um, you know, the, I, I mentioned that my worldview fell apart and then when I was in high school and then I began to investigate things. And it's not that as I investigated things, like every element of my original worldview just, you know, was restored or something like this. I mean, I remember having this moment of thinking, I can't just make up reality. And so if I really want to find out reality, I have to like face it bravely and go yeah. into it and just seek the truth. Right. And that process and people will arrive at different truths and, and different ideas, I think, depending on their journey. But for me, it didn't lead me to pick up all the original pieces. It led me to see God as bigger and more universal than I had imagined. Um, it led me, it restored certain pieces, but certain other pieces I came to think were, were too simple, actually. So, I mean, I've, I've come to think that God moves in different contexts and different cultures. And um, I don't think that every way is equally right or equally good. I think that uh, loving people is a way that's better than hating people no matter which religion or which culture you come from, love uh, is better than hate, right? But that God sees people on their journey, even in different contexts and different cultures. And to be honest, I, I see that there are truths in different contexts and different cultures that aren't emphasized so much in some cultures. And so I, I really do think that different, um, different cultures can help each other see new angles and new sides of God, even even maybe better understanding one's own tradition. You can sort of see one's own tradition in new light by entering into another tradition, another perspective. Yeah, that's well, you're talking about prior probability. So you're right, yeah. right up my I'm a Bayesian guy. So you're right up my alley with that. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I would agree 100 percent. My view of God in the world was extremely narrow before um, going through kind of a deconstruction and reconstruction. And I do, I have a much different uh, idea of God, a, a, a more full, robust and, and wider range, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because it's trying to understand, you know, this in science terms, let's say 10 10-dimensional creature when we're three-dimensional creatures, you know, we're not going to fully grasp everything about it. Um, but at the same time, just the, the overarching relation to reality that I never had before. I never would have thought anything like, you know, panentheism or soft panentheism or divine conceptualism or any of these ideas where, where Aquinas is, you know, eminence that 
God actually permeated reality in the way that he does, regardless of one's idea of that. So uh, I'm with you 100% on that. It has just broadened my idea of God. Um, and speaking of different cultures and things, I also know that you're uh, a universalist. How did you get to universalism? Oh, I think he froze up again. Oh, oh, I hope I didn't say all that for nothing. I'm hoping that uh, possibly. Oh, he disconnected this time. Man, that's okay. We're going to get through it. He'll pop back in. And uh, so for the chat, I do apologize, but um, I am very ADHD and I have to really focus on my guest. I can't do the chat and at the same time, I'm not that good. Um. So we'll go through here and look at a few of these and see if Josh can pop back on. Uh, let's see. Secular Rarity says he knew he didn't exist. <laughs> sure. Uh, Grand Priest is called Mereological Nihilism Crazy. He seems to find it self-evident that he is a whole that has parts. I don't disagree. Oh, wow. That's an, I'm going to have to talk to Dustin about that. Uh, I'm, I'm not well, There we go. What's going on here with, with my internet. I'm so sorry about that. No, it's okay. Don't worry about it. it I, I mean, it's a live show. It happens. It, uh, I, I can I can go back and edit it later on. So, <laughs> um, so I was asking. Uh, we were talking about culture. You know, you were talking about cultures and things. And yeah. I also know that you're uh, a universalist. Um, how did what made you come to the idea of universalism? Because I I want to be sold on the idea of universalism. Yeah. Okay. So for the audience, I I want to make sure it's clear. Universal reconciliation is not the same as pluralism. So sometimes these get conflated. Right. So pluralism is the idea that kind of roughly all paths are paths to God, uh, all paths through all the major religions, and there's different ways of characterizing pluralism. Um, whereas universalism, universal reconciliation is the idea that um, we will eventually, well, everybody has a bright future in the sense that, um, you know, salvation does come through grace and repentance and we all need god nobody saves themselves um you know there's a cooperation with god's grace nobody's perfect so we all we all need that that restoration uh, but that through a process everybody will eventually come through and also this is not a no-hell position either so it's not the idea that nobody is ever separated from god um, but rather that um, that separation doesn't have to continue in eternal conscious torment or even annihilation. Yeah. And so this is a view that I always thought was a view that maybe people who liked philosophy might like this view, um, not for biblical reasons, but purely because they, they would think that if, if God's perfectly loving, then universalism has to be true. That, that was the impression that I had. And so for me, that impression was completely shattered as I began to investigate the biblical data 
um, on this topic. It started with an article by a Yale philosopher, Keith DeRose, Universalism and the Bible. And Keith DeRose makes an argument from the biblical data for why he thinks that the best interpretation points toward a kind of universal reconciliation through Christ. So it's, it's again, it's not a pluralism. It, you know, it's still through a, a road, um, through a doorway. But, um, but he makes the argument from the biblical data that all people will eventually come through that, that, uh, that road. And I have to say, I wasn't just like convinced by the article, but what it did convince me of was that it was possible for somebody to believe that the biblical data pointed toward universal reconciliation. And I didn't even know that because that kind of shattered the idea that sort of on a psychological level, nobody taking the biblical data, data seriously would arrive at, at that position. And that kind of sparked, I would say, like a 10-year journey of me thinking about it, um, considering the passages, turning over the issues in my mind. And the result of that journey has been a shift in my understanding that, um, you know, my wife and I, we wrote this little book, When Heaven Invades Hell, where we display some of our thinking about the topic in the form of a dialogue debate. It's in a, a fictional context but it's a way of sort of displaying the arguments um, in this context so that readers could explore those arguments and see maybe that there's a little more depth than what is often appreciated, at least more depth than I ever knew was there. Wow. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to say uh, I, you and your wife had written a book uh, about it. It's, uh, I, I guess, kind of like a C.S. Lewis style where, mm -hmm. you know, there's a theological message and implication to uh fictional story so it's uh which is it's pretty cool it puts a gives you a different way of of understanding it um yeah i think that uh eternal conscious torment is just i don't think it's biblical i don't think it's viable i don't think it's any sense of the word good god could be uh sustaining people in eternity, you know, for punishment. I quote unquote am a you uh hopeful universalist. Okay. Um and the more that I study Second Temple Judaism, um and Judaism, you know, like the Hasidic Jews or Orthodox or ultra Orthodox uh had this idea of Sheol, you know, that there's um eleven years maximum where you're in this this place so the way that i he heard one rabbi explain it was um here on earth with the fallen nature of humanity our soul has this stench mm -hmm. and it's the stench of fallenness and depending on you know uh the the level of fallenness or or you know the evils that we do it depends on how long it takes in Sheol for this stench to be removed, you know, from our soul. So this idea, kind of like a purgatory kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And those who uh, are not considered uh, Abrahamic or, or faithful Abrahamic are annihilated. So uh, it's, it, it's not this, this universal reconciliation is, to me is not totally foreign to, you know, the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, 
And one important thing you'd mentioned about Christ being the way, that is one of the things that, you know, that I've struggled to speaking with other evangelicals that the Bible teaches that Christ is the way the -hmm. Bible doesn't teach that you have to know Christ. You have to, um, you know, for all of those who aren't, who don't get the opportunity to hear the gospel or things like that. It just says that God is the way. And I think we add all of these different things in this litmus test of certain beliefs and positions and things like that. And I think that uh, I take the Bible, you know, at its word that Christ is the way, regardless of of how we're saved, it is through Christ, you know. Uh, so that's that's kind of the the way that I take it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Keith DeRose, I mean, he even makes the point that, uh, you know, even if you need certain beliefs to to have the proper content, um, you know, there, there's time for that. Uh, and it doesn't have to be sort of on, on this side. It could be in a near-death experience or in another in another way, um, post-mortem. But there's different models for that. And I actually think that that's kind of what I care about. And I don't want to necessarily say the most here, but I find very helpful to just kind of get different models on the table because I think models can be very liberating. Uh, I think sometimes if you get stuck in one model, okay, then it's like everything hangs on that one model. You know, you mentioned being a hopeful universalist. Well, that suggests that you're not just like committed to the universal reconciliation idea, but it's a it's a model that you're that's a live option for you. And it was very interesting because in uh, I think it was Greg Boyd's book, Letters to a Skeptic. This is a book where he it grew out of letters to his dad, who was uh, an atheist, did not believe in God. And they were talking about theology. And Greg basically was moving through the different objections that his dad was having. And by the end of the book, his dad changes his mind and comes to believe in God, and becomes a Christian. But one of the obstacles toward the end was this that question of hell and eternal conscious torment. And what Greg did, I thought was very interesting, was he presented some different models, including a model that Greg himself didn't accept, but he didn't want there to be an unnecessary barrier because the core truths that Greg was trying to point to didn't require his particular model. Um, And so he pointed to some different ones. I think annihilation was one of them. And so his dad, in the next chapter, his dad kind of grabbed onto one of the models that Greg himself wasn't personally endorsing, but it's one of the options. And he said, okay, well, if scholars can debate this, then I don't need to sort of be be hung up on this. And I thought that was very interesting because it shows how I think sometimes there can be unnecessary barriers to a certain treasure, something that is a valuable truth, but it's associated with certain models, but it's not essentially connected to those models. And by seeing a range of models, you can avoid, even if you don't have a view on which of those models is right, uh, it, it can keep you from distractions, keep you from barriers really to, let's say, more important truths. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of one of the things that philosophy has done for me is kind of unlocked my mind from this black and white view, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I have to take 
a certain view or put a label on my view or, um, you know, it, it's it's helped me to try to stay intellectually uh, humble. You know, mm-hmm. it's because I have been wrong many a times. Yeah. Humble and, and curious, willing to be wrong. Yeah. Exploring, right. growing. It's kind of like you, uh, you defended the correspondence theory of truth. And I'm kind of like, you know, why can't we just take some from coherentism or mm-hmm. in correspondence and, and kind of build this meta view, mm-hmm. you know, of course I would agree with you. I think that the correspondence is far more accurate. Well, you're of... speaking again to the value of models, right? I mean, there are different models of truth and, um, and, and you can sort of become flexible in your thinking by seeing how the different models could explain certain data. Um, and I think that's very helpful. And I also want just to point out here, if I, if I could, mm-hmm. that sometimes I think what will keep somebody from considering another model is that the current model that they have already seems so clear that you almost like can't imagine how somebody could think another way. And I, I kind of had this thought about the universal reconciliation versus eternal conscious torment and annihilation views is that I thought, well, the biblical data is just very clear. It says literally that the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Like, how could it not be clearer, right? So, I mean, this is part of why I had this sort of psychological analysis that the only people who could have a different view just couldn't be reading the clear passages of scripture, right? But then I began to do the word studies and I discovered, oh, that word, anionios, it shows up in the Greek Septuagint translation of Jonah when it describes his time in the fish being forever. But wait a minute, in the same text, it says he got out. Like he wasn't literally in there for everlasting, you know, uh, for e- for eternity. He actually got out of the fish, right? In that very text. And right. it's the exact same word. Um, and yeah, and there's other places in, in that time, that culture where it uses that word to express a time or a, a period, you know. And then people say, well, you know, what about when it says that some will go to uh, eternal life and others to eternal death. We need to be symmetrical there. It's clear that if if heaven goes on endlessly, that death must go on endlessly. This is the argument from parallel. Mm-hmm. But then you look at that and you say, but wait a minute. I mean, if that term literally does mean ages, then you can translate it as some go on for ages to life and some go on for ages to death. And it leaves it unspecified parallelly in both cases. Does that mean that we have no way of anticipating that uh, eternal life is endless? Well, no, because there's other data from scripture talking about being clothed with immortal bodies. And also there's an argument from God's love. And so there's other reasons for thinking that life can go on forever, that that the good and the bad are asymmetric. So those are just a few examples. And I mean, I'm getting kind of passionate about this just because I feel like there can be barriers. My goal here is not to argue for universal reconciliation. Right, That's not my right. point, but it's just to kind of open it up a little bit, you know, and, and maybe right. remove some barriers that would prevent people from even considering the possibility. That's well, it, and you bring up a very good point because when I have discussions with, uh, you know, literalists, um, you know, I have to, a lot of times I have to explain the concept of being lost in translation, cultural context, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like this. We, you know, we have 
you can't always uh, translate a word exactly into the English language, or they would use a word that had a lot of different meanings, you know, um, and we have to kind of understand that uh, uh, we're, you know, thousands of years removed from this culture and this language, and we're still learning about the culture and the language, and we have to put that into perspective but um yeah i think you yeah if i could just add here i mean you know it's not that the text can't be clear it's just that sometimes and i'm speaking for myself now Mm -hmm. something might seem clear because of the english translation and maybe the sermons that surrounded that english translation from my youth so it just seems clear right uh it's sort of like that feeling that nobody speaks with an accent um uh, that, sorry, that other people speak with an accent, but you yourself don't speak with an accent because you don't recognize your own accent. Right. Similarly, it's like you are maybe raised in a tradition, you read it in your own language. And so one interpretation might seem clear relative to your own language in that tradition. But then you dig in and you realize, just like you said, that there uh, it's translated across culture and across language. And sometimes there's variations there that, you know, we wouldn't know just by reading it in our our English translations. Right. Uh, So now it's time for the hard questions. Okay. (laughs) It gets harder now. Uh, Yeah. What is your favorite band? Uh Uh-oh. That is a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, I like the music that my wife makes. So she can wow. Uh, She's not exactly a band, but I mean, you know, she's, she's made music where she's recorded all the different parts. She would do each instrument one at a time and then put them all together into a track. Wow. So, so she's my, probably at the top of my list. (laughs) Okay. She's not listening. Who's your real band? No, No, I I don't have a good answer to this, right? So (laughs) I I like when I write, when I do my writing, I kind of like to have um, sort of like uh, some techno music that I can listen to has a certain energy to it. Oh yeah. I like Evanescence, for example, you know, but. Oh, wow. Yeah. Evanescence rocks. I like uh, Evanescence. The, the, I don't remember the guy's name. Uh, He was from the band 12 Stones, which was actually a Christian rock band. Mm-hmm. Um, that does some of the lead or helps with the okay. vocals and some of the more famous songs that they did. Yeah. But uh, does cool. pineapple go on pizza? <laughs> no. Yes. I already like that. I right love you now. Yes. That but is tomatoes. Right. <laughs> I, hey, I can do a, uh, what do they, what do, what do they call that? The tomato and basil. Uh, margarita pizza oh yeah, yeah. i can good. definitely do that well yeah. tomatoes are a fruit aren't they you, hmm. you can have you can have tomatoes and you can mix it up with um um banana peppers give you a little bit of spice Ooh, i do like some banana peppers yeah uh what's your favorite dessert mint chocolate chip ice cream briars wow that was very specific. Is that one of those I got to have a bowl for I go to bed every night? Ice cream? Not every night, no. And actually, I've discovered you can have frozen fruit and you mash it up and that tastes just as good, healthier. So wow. That works okay. as well. Welcome to Brute Facts Diet Pointer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Josh, I tried to keep it around an hour. I am extremely thankful that uh, you came on and spoke with us. And I think you had some very interesting 
points and uh, very interesting life. I, I love your work and uh, I think you're a fantastic person and I really appreciate it. I appreciate that, Eddie. And if I may just ask you a hard question, the uh -oh. hardest question you've ever been asked live, putting you on the spot. Oh. Why Brute Facts? Podcast? Why Brute Facts? I, okay. There must be an explanation, right, for the name Brute Facts. Yes. So being a theist, um, being interested in uh, the uh, modal contingency argument, uh, uh, modal logic, and it seen that the alternative to the principle of sufficient reason or it always ended at brute fact or brute contingency or mm -hmm. brute something. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, you know, how funny or they always want to say, well, God is a brute fact. Um, so I was like, uh, how how neat would that be? Or, or, you know, kind of flipping it around that a, a theist or a Christian, you know, mm -hmm. had a brute fact program and so I checked it on YouTube and it wasn't taken and I checked the website and it wasn't taken. I said, well, then that's it. It's, it's a brute fact. So. I love it. <laughs> love it. Well, it, it's yeah. satisfying to hear that there was explanation for yeah. picking up the name. Yeah. It's not just a brute fact. That's yeah. called brute facts. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. That's pretty good. <laughs> so thank you for that. Hi. Thank you so much, Dr. Josh. I'm going to see everybody out of here and put you in the back room. If you got to go, that's fine. If not, I'll be there in a minute. Thank you. Catch you later. Oh, actually, anything you, before I let you go, anything you want to plug before you go? You, aren't you working on a new book? Working on a book on consciousness. And I would say uh, what we mentioned earlier, the worldview-design.com uh, is a resource to encourage people in their thinking about the hardest questions. The hardest questions about God and reality. So the questions that I like to think about. There's some good content there too. And I do have his uh, website in the description. You can find his books there. And it's a cool website. And there's um, free resources there that you can get off of the website. Yeah, articles and things there. So, yep. yep. So thank you very much. I'll see you in a minute. Thank you. Dr. Josh Rasmussen. Man, that's uh, I was trying everything I could not to fanboy. I uh, I love Dr. Josh. I love his work. I love um, the way his mind works. Um, he has been an incredible influence in uh, my philosophical journey. Uh, I cite his stuff quite often, and I'm sure there's plenty of people here who's heard me cite his work. Um, but anyway, thank you, everybody, for coming. I really appreciate it. I have had... Uh, a great time talking with Dr. Josh. And I do have, I think, uh, I don't have the date offhand, but um, Russ Schaefer Landau is coming on. Um, and I have a couple of other philosophers in the work, works, and I will put that information out uh, as soon as we get dates that are nailed down. Thanks again, everybody.